So chapter 2, verse 12. The sons of Eli were wicked men. Now, this phrase, wicked men, comes from the Hebrew, the sons of Belial. Now, Belial, I remember, told you was that just utter demonic kind of wickedness. Not that they're demonic or they're demon-possessed, but just total depravity, kind of evil, no regard for anybody or the morality of God in any kind of way. Now, what's interesting is that Eli mistakenly accused Hannah of being Belial, this wickedness. And what's interesting is not only is he completely misevaluated her, but he's also doesn't even see that his sons are that. And so this continues the idea of his total blindness, his lack of discernment, his lack of wisdom, his lack of seeing the truth for what it really is. They did not recognize Yahweh's authority. Now that's huge. Because remember, Hannah just got done singing a song saying, the true king is the one who recognizes the authority of Yahweh. And the whole point of the entire book of Samuel is true leadership, true kingship is submitting to the authority of Yahweh. Which means they're not, there's nothing good about this family. Now the priests would always treat the people in the following way. Whenever anyone was making a sacrifice while the meat was boiling, the priest attendant attendant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would jab it into the basin the kettle the cauldron or the pot and everything that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself this is what they used to do to all the israelites when they came there to shiloh remember back in leviticus the requirements for sacrifices were given and they would bring their animal into the tabernacle gate the person who owned the animal who was making the sacrifice they would cut the neck of the animal. They would bleed the animal out into a bowl, and then they would hand it to the priest. And the priest was in charge of cutting up the animal. And they would put like intestines and fat in one pile and meat and bones in another pile. And then depending on the sacrifice, what part of it got burnt. Now there were five major animal sacrifices according to Leviticus, and each sacrifice, the burnt offering, they had to burn everything, fat, intestines, meat, everything to God. But the other sacrifices, God made it very clear what the priests got and what they didn't get and what the people got and what they didn't get and what was to be burned on the altar. There's very clear requirements. So when you're first reading this, you think, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Like, I just stick my fork into the pot and whatever comes out, I just trust God that that's what he wants for me. Until you read Leviticus, you realize that God made it very clear that most animal sacrifices, the priests were only allowed to have like the right thigh of the animal and the left breast or something like that. And they're disregarding that completely. And so notice it doesn't say that Eli's family is doing this. It doesn't say that Eli's sons are doing this. It says all the priests of Israel are doing this. They're just boiling, they're just putting this meat in the cauldron, and they're just stabbing a fork in, and whatever comes out is theirs. And it could be way more than what God ever prescribed them in Leviticus. And the point is, there, this is a total disregard for the law. And what makes this even more sinful is, we're not just talking about them disregarding the law in the normal area. This is the atonement sacrifices offered to Yahweh for the sins of the people. And they're cheating and disobeying the law. That's really messed up. That's like you just saying, like, I'm just going to randomly stick my hand in the offering plate and pull out whatever comes out. And if whatever comes out, God must have want me to have it. And it's like, but it's even worse because that's not even for atonement of sins. That's not even for atonement of sins. And this is. 
So the, what they're saying is, remember, Judges ended with two really jacked up Levitical priests. And you kind of wonder, oh, were they the exception? And the answer here is no. They were not the exception. The entire priesthood has become corrupt. The entire priesthood has become corrupt. This is important to understand because in Judges, we were seeing the corruption of everyday normal leaders and the priesthood. When we get to Samuel, we're going to see the corruption of the kings. And when we get to kings, we're going to see the corruption of the prophets. And by the time we get done, every single office in Israel is completely corrupt. Verse 15 then goes on and says, Even before they burnt the... um, the priest the burnt burned the fat. The priest attendant would come and say to the person who was making the sacrifice, "Hand over some meat for the priest to roast. He won't take boiled meat from you, but only raw." If the individual said to him, first let the fat burned away, then take it for yourself, whatever you wish," he would say, "No, hand it over right now. If you don't, I will take it by force." So these Hophni and Phineas, the sons of Eli, have gone even further. And once again, too, they're boiling the meat. You're not really supposed to boil the meat. The meat was supposed to be offered first on the sacrifice, raw and burnt, and then you took home whatever was left prescribed by God. So now they're saying, give me the meat right off the bat. And the people are saying, no, let me at least burn the fat of the animal as a sacrifice to God before you take the meat. And the priests are saying, no, you give us the meat first, or we'll take it by force. Now you've kind of got like an Al Capone strong arming system going on here, where they're forcing the people to give them the meat, even when the people don't want to. But what's more important than this is, they're saying, no, I want the meat before it's even sacrificed to God. And the whole point was not the priests to get meat. The whole point was the sacrifice to God for the atonement of sins. So they're saying, give to me first, and then you can give to God. And we're going to force you to do it. Now, what really makes this interesting is that, remember, the judges also ended with the corruption of the people. And the people were really jacked up. And one of the last scenes is the the Israelites have become worse than the Canaanites with the whole Gibeah scene. And what's interesting is that it says that the people are even horrified and shocked at the practice of the priests. That says something when really wicked people get shocked and horrified by evil. And so what it's showing you is the entire priesthood is corrupt. And who's leading the priesthood? Eli and his two sons. And they basically have turned God's sacrificial system into a prophet for themselves and what they're doing. Later we're going to be told that Eli is a very overweight man. And the point is here, this is why he's getting overweight. He's just eating and eating, eating, eating the meat that was supposed to go to Yahweh or to the people, and he's taking it for himself. And so this is a very greedy image that is being presented here. Verse 17, The sin of these young men was very great in Yahweh's sight, for they had treated Yahweh's offering with contempt. Now remember, with Aaron's sons back in the book of Leviticus, when they just burnt the incense in the wrong way, God struck them down with lightning. And now these guys are actually stealing from God and stealing from the people and cheating them in the atonement sacrifices. So there's no good ending for these guys. So why change there? Why it was so sacred there in the beginning for God that he struck them down right in the very beginning, but why is he letting this drag? Good question. 
Sometimes God allows judgment to drag out. Sometimes he lets it drag, and I can't give you every reason because this is going into like the mind and the will of God that is not always revealed in the Bible. So in this one, I'm going to have to chalk it up to the mystery of God and that big picture of what's happening in the world that we can't even begin to comprehend why he's allowing this and that. But sometimes on just a theological level, he lets it drag out for one or two reasons, usually what the Bible shows. One, to give that family a chance to repent or correct itself. You're going to see this when we get to Ahab. He's going to drag Ahab's judgment out to give Ahab a chance to repent and come back to God. Sometimes he allows it to drag out just to punish the people even more. A lot of times, God, when we get to Saul, God's going to say, fine, you want to disobey me? Fine. You don't want me as king? Fine. I'm going to give you a king that's going to make your life miserable. And that is their judgment. And so remember, yes, the people are horrified by this, but the people are not innocent. The people are drastically falling away from God. They're all corrupt. And God sometimes allows these evil people to be in power and leadership in order to punish the entire culture for their sins and their judgments. And so when God is doing one or the other without biblical revelation, or if there's a third or fourth reason why he's going on, I can't tell you, but that's usually what's going on. And so you have to understand, the Bible makes it very clear that every leader is put into power by God. But whether they're there for judgment or whether they're there for blessing is without a prophet, it's hard to say. And so sometimes it's just to punish the people. Verse 18, Now Samuel was ministering before Yahweh, and the boy was dressed in a linen ephod. So now the contrast comes along and says, But unlike the sons, Samuel is ministering before Yahweh. And he's wearing a linen ephod. Now technically, the two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are wearing linen ephods because that's prescribed by God. But the linen ephod was a white vest that represented the purity and the righteousness of the priests and that they got to go before God and serve him because they were more righteous. By leaving out the ephod in association with Hophni and Phinehas and then mentioning it on Samuel and that he is ministering before God and they're not, he's immediately giving you a contrast of Samuel's righteousness and their lack of righteousness. That's an intentional literary device that's been given. The boy was dressed in an ephod. Then he's also called a na'ar. A na'ar is the Hebrew word for lad or servant. Now, the word lad can mean anything. It can mean a very small toddler boy, all the way up into a middle school, a high school, or even college person. But the point is that it's not their age that's emphasized, it's their youth or inexperience. So you can have like a 60-year-old man who is a na'ar, who is inexperienced or youthful or innocent or immature. A very old man who is very immature in their character and that kind of stuff. And the point is, this is very interesting because the, the narrator is going to use this word na'ar, lad or boy, to make a contrast between Samuel. So Samuel is a na'ar, a boy or a lad, because he literally is a boy. He is a lad. And he, he's ministering before Yahweh, but he has not quite become an adult where he can lead Israel yet. And so he's learning. The boy was dressed in linen ephod. His mother used to make him a small robe and bring it up to him on regular intervals when she would go up with her husband to make the annual sacrifice. This word for robe is me'il. 
Mi'il is a Hebrew word for robe, and this is another one, and this is why I tell you all this stuff, so you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. But mi'il is this robe, word for robe, and robes are very significant in the ancient world because robes are the way that you portray your status. Remember Joseph and the coat, the richly ornamented coat? That coat represented his status, his authority over people. We do the same thing. Even in America, you have uniforms for different companies. Generals wear certain things on their outfits. Doctors wear different things. We have things that portray. You, like in the 1970s, you wear plaid, and that shows you're rebellious to the government, so to speak. Or you can go all black because you're goth. I mean, there's all different ways that clothing communicates different things about your status. And so in the ancient world, it's the same way. And this word mi'il, robe, is going to be a very common theme used throughout Samuel. It's going to be used a lot to point out something. So once again, notice he's wearing a linen ephod and he has a robe. And robes are usually symbolic, symbolic of high status. And so God is already giving him a high status because he's wearing an ephod and his mother's bringing him a new robe on a regular basis. And so what's interesting is that this robe is going to become a marker of Samuel. And when you think of robe, you should be thinking of Samuel. And then it's going to be associated with the priesthood. And this is going to be, when we get to Kings, it's going to be associated with Elijah passing his robe off to Elisha, and that's why he has the right to be the next prophet. So the word robe is going to be connected to to prophets, not limited to them, but mostly commonly connected to them. And so he is wearing a robe. And it's a small robe because it's so cute. He got it from Baby's R.S. Right? And he'd bring it to him on a regular intervals when he would go up with her husband. Now, Eli would bless Elikana, whatever that would amount to. And his wife saying, May Yahweh raise up for you descendants from this woman to replace one that she is dedicated to Yahweh. Then they would go to their home. And so Yahweh graciously attended to Hannah. And she was able to conceive and give birth to three sons, two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew up in Yahweh's sanctuary. So God rewards Hannah's faithfulness by blessing her with more children. And what's interesting here is that Eli pronounces that blessing on her, and you're thinking, yeah, like what he would even know what God's blessing even is. Yet God still uses him. Once again, remember with Gideon and Samson, even though they were so far away from God in any kind of connection to him, God still used them. And this is God's prerogative to use whoever he wants and not use whoever he wants for whatever purposes. Being used by God does not automatically mean that you're right with God either. That's an important thing to remember. The Bible makes that very clear. So the boy grew in Yahweh's sanctuary. Verse 22, now Eli was a very old man when he heard about everything that his sons used to do to all the people of Israel and how they used to have sex with the women who were stationed at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So now we find out that their sins are even greater because now they're not only stealing from God, but they're having sex with the women who serve the tabernacle. And this seems to be regular women on a regular basis, not just like an affair with a woman or something like that, but just whoever comes along, which says something about the women serving the tabernacle. Now, one wonders, like, why would I ever go to the tabernacle? Like, everybody there is so corrupt and everybody there is so messed up. But the reality is, it's still the house of God. And that's, I mean, remember, you have to think in a theological Israelite term, they don't have a concept of heaven like us, but this would be their version of heaven, the tabernacle, because this is where God dwells. Now you're being told that heaven is filled with these corrupt people.
people like this is big. Now, don't carry that too far, and don't take that out of context. I was afraid of somebody re-editing me. But, um, but that, that's kind of the way they would, they would view it. They would view it that way. He said to them, Why do you behave in this way? For I hear about these evil things from all these people. This ought not to be, my sons. For the report that I have here circulating among Yahweh's people is not good. If a man sins against a man, one may appeal to God on his behalf. But if a man sins against Yahweh, who then will intercede for him? But Eli's sons would not listen to their father, for Yahweh decided to kill them. They've been doing really bad practices for a long time. And he's been getting very wealthy off of those practices. But he hears the rumors. Now notice what's very important here. He hears of what they're doing, but he has not witnessed with his own eyes what they're doing. Which means... What father is it shows a disconnectedness from the father, and I know that like every parent, there's so many things that your kids have done that you haven't seen with your own eyes, but that's not the point. The point is not that he's supposed to be seeing every bad thing that they've done. The point is that he hasn't witnessed any of this. Like the tabernacle wasn't very big; <laughs> the entire courtyard was like 150 feet by 75 feet. They're having sex with the women serving at the tabernacle. They're stealing meat from God on a regular basis. How has he not witnessed any of that with his own eyes? That's the point. It's not that he's a bad father because he didn't see every sin of his kids. He's a bad father because this is happening literally in his own courtyard. And he has no idea what's going on. And that he waited so long. And notice he doesn't question them. He doesn't question them. He doesn't interrogate. He just goes by the rumors. He just assumes it's true. And then he judges him. But he really doesn't do anything. He just kind of says, bad boys, bad boys. But there's no punishment. There's no consequences. They should have been completely removed from their position of power. Yet he doesn't do that. Because even though he probably is horrified, and even though he doesn't approve, he's been reaping the benefits of this. And it's hard to give that up. There's a rebuke there. But there's not. And you can imagine the sons would not respect them at all. And so the imagery you have here is another Jacob. Because remember, Jacob's daughter got raped and then just kind of got mad and that's all he did. And because he didn't deal anything with his daughter's rape, the sons got really mad at him because he was a bad father. So they went and murdered the entire Shechemite village because one man in Shechem did that. But then he got really mad at them and he didn't do anything. You just have a father who gets mad at everything but never does anything. And that's what we have with Eli. He's angry, he's upset, he knows it's wrong. But at the same time, little does he know that when he says, like, well, if you sin against another human, then God can intercede on your behalf. But if you sin against God, who's going to intercede on your behalf? And that is so true. The wisdom that comes out of his mouth is amazing. Yet what he doesn't realize is that that applies to him as well. That applies to him as well. And when it says that the sons didn't listen to him because God had already decided to kill them for it, what you also need to understand is that Eli is going to be included in that as well. Eli is going to be included in that. Now the lad, the Na'ar, Samuel, was growing up and finding favor both with Yahweh and with people. There's a contrast. The priests don't find, they don't have favor in the people's eyes. And God is about ready to kill the house of Eli, which means, but this little boy, he has favor in God's eyes. Verse 27. A man of God. Now, man of God is a very common phrase to be used of a prophet. They can be called the prophet, the old prophet, the man of God. 
any of those phrases are words used to refer to a prophet. Now, in Samuel, it usually means a godly prophet. When we get to kings, the man of God or the prophet is going to become very blurry. And you're not going to know whether they're godly or not godly or a mixture of both because there's going to be a different theme being developed here. So man of God, a prophet, came to Eli and said to him, This is what Yahweh says. Did I not plainly reveal myself to your ancestors' house when they were in Egypt in the house of Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar. The implication is I chose the Levites. Out of all the tribes and all the families, I chose the Levites. And then out of all the Levites, I chose Aaron's family. So you are specially chosen by God by the fact that you are a certain family of a certain tribe. And I chose you to make sacrifices at my altar and to burn incense and to bear to the ephod before me. I chose you to serve me. I gave to you your ancestors the house of all the fire offerings made by the Israelites. Why are you scorning my sacrifices and my offerings? Notice how much the my is there. Because they've been seeing this as theirs for a long time. And God's coming in and saying, no more. You have honored your sons for my dwelling place. You have honored your sons more than you have me by having made yourselves fat from the best parts of all the offerings of my people Israel. The word for honor there is the word kabod. Okay, or kabod or kabod, depending on how you want to transliterate that into English. But the word kabod can mean heavy or glory. This is the word used for the word the glory of Yahweh, the kabod of Yahweh. It's also the word used for heavy. It's also the word used for honor, because glory and honor are very similar. Now, the reason it's the word for heavy and glory, and you're like, what does those have to come? Because the glory of God is very heavy upon you. When it comes upon you, God's glory is heavy. It is burdensome. And a, like, who can stand in the presence of Yahweh kind of a sense and live. And so this word is, there's going to be a puns thrown out through here, too, with the word kabod, because they have kabod themselves more than they have God. But they've also become kabod because they've been eating the sacrifices of God. Then later we're going to see that God's hand of judgment is going to be kabod upon them for their sins. And so because they did give glory, heaviness, to themselves more than God, they have made themselves fat, kabod, heavy, and God's going to become heavy upon them because of their sins. And this is, this is a very intentional pun that's going on there, very creative, creative literary devices. This is what's coming. Verse 30. Therefore, Yahweh the God of Israel says, I really did say that your house and your ancestors' house would serve me forever. But now Yahweh says, may it never be. For I will honor, kabod, those who kabod me. But those who despise me, I will be cursed. Okay? Because you've honored yourself instead of me, I will become heavy upon you. But those who choose not to be honored themselves, I will honor them. I will lift them up into glory. And then those who despise me, I will curse them. In fact, the days are coming when I will remove your strength and the strength of your father's house, your influence. There will be not a man old enough in your house. You will see trouble in many dwelling places. Israel will experience blessings, but there will not be any old man in your house for all time. 
any one of you that I do not cut off from your altar, the altar, I will cause your eyes to fail and will cause your grief. All those born to your family will die in the prime of your life. This will be the confirming sign for you that you will be fulfilled through your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In a single day, they will both die. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, and he will do what is my, in my heart and soul. And I will build for him a secure dynasty, and he will serve my chosen one for all time. Everyone who remains in your house will come to bow before him for a little money and for a scrap of bread. Each will say, assign me to a priestly task so I can eat a scrap of bread. So this is God's judgment. None of you in your family forever will ever make it to old age. Every single person in your family from this point on will die young because of what your sins, of what you've done. And you'll be all cut off from the altar. You will no longer be able to be priests. Nobody in the line of Eli will ever get to be priests again. And nobody will make it to old age. And that's God's judgment upon them. Because they have taken so much from God, and they have taken so much from the people of Israel, God is going to take from them now. Then he says, a day will come when I will raise up a true priest. Now, who is he referring to? Yeah. In some ways, he's referring to Samuel, but Samuel is not going to have a lineage of priests that will keep going. So immediately, this is working on several levels. Immediately, he's referring to Samuel because it's going to go to Samuel in the very next passage. But long term, he's speaking to the family of Zadok. And Zadok was also in the line of Aaron. And Zadok is going to come along in 2 Kings. Now, what's interesting is, once again, God's going to drag Eli's judgment out because Eli is going to continue to have sons who will serve as priests through the reign of Saul and the reign of David. It will not become until Solomon that Solomon will cut off this house completely and install a brand new family, the Zadoks. And the Zadoks will go on for pretty much the rest of the Bible or the rest of the First Testament. So on an immediate level, it's Samuel. On a long-term, prolonged level, it's the family of Zadok that will come in 2 Kings. But in a bigger theological principle that God is anticipating, but the man of God can never, ever comprehend, it's also Jesus Christ. But notice how it says that those who are great will now beg for food and scraps. That should remind you of Hannah's song, where Hannah says, God lifts up those who are poor, and God brings down those who are heavy or um, who are powerful and make themselves great. And so what God is saying here is, you've made yourself great, I'm going to bring you down. But the family is Zadok, who's been marginalized in the priesthood and shoved off to the side, and Samuel, who's just a Na'ar, I'm going to lift them up. I'm going to lift them up. Because this is how God operates. Eli's family has been judged. Now, every prophecy this is very important especially when we get to kings every single prophecy must have a sign to validate and prove that it's legit because sometimes prophecies are going to be very long term like a, a son will come well that's a couple thousand years away or when the the prophet is going to come to jeroboam and say your family is going to be destroyed and this altar is going to be destroyed it'll be like 300 years before that happens so sometimes prophecies can be very long term so how do you know that prophet is right? There must be an assign given, an immediate fulfillment 
that validates that this guy was actually talking from God. Because I could give like a long-term prophecy and you wouldn't know like in 20 years, da-da-da-da. And you could put all your hope and trust in me for 20 years and then it doesn't happen. You realize, wow, I was led astray. So I need to do something immediately to prove that I'm from God. So the man of God says to prove that this will happen in a few days, so to speak, both your sons will die on the same day. The likelihood of both sons dying, especially priests who hang out in the tabernacle all the time, is not very likely. And so that will fulfill it. So this is God's judgment on the house of Eli. They're all going to die. Now, Eli's already old. So the implications, even though his death has not specifically been mentioned, the fact that he's old means he's got to die very soon. Because the prophecy says he will not make it to old age. 